This is Steve Downs, the voice of Master Chief Sierra 117, with a shout out to the Xbox Expansion Pass. Keep your heads up during this time of isolation. Stay positive. Play some games. Most importantly, finish the fight. Thanks for listening to XEP. Master Chief, out. Welcome one, welcome all to episode 70 of the Xbox Expansion Pass, recorded on Sunday, February 14th, 2021. I am your host, Luke Lore, the Insipid Ghost. In this episode, we welcome the voice behind Agent 47 himself, the hitman, David Bateson, here to discuss voicing the same character for over 20 years in the world of gaming. Beyond that, we wade through a quiet week of rumors and tackle some of the larger topics surrounding Xbox, including communication strategies with fans, exclusivity, and the need to stay current in your gaming zeitgeist. Enjoy. Yet another week of gaming is upon us and behind us. Welcome to XEP, discussing all things in the Gamerverse as they pertain to the Xbox ecosystem. And as I want to do each and every week, I want to offer words of kindness to those who have made my gaming week better. And this week, I extend those kind words to Twitter user Skedaddle for responding to my request for a fun vertical shmup with a fantastic suggestion that he had in Anger Force Reloaded. I've been wanting a good shoot 'em up as it were, for some time. Something in the vein of Skyforce Reloaded, a game that I really, really enjoyed, uh, but I just haven't found an equivalent to in the game. Game Pass space or something on sale, Skedaddle rather came in clutch with a great suggestion in Anger Force, and I am now having a blast with this little indie title. It's a vertical scrolling shooter that I'm just just having an absolute ball with. I didn't want to break the bank on something like Raiden V or Raiden Five, I suppose, uh, at thirty bucks. In this game, Anger Force was on sale for like four dollars, and I am just having a blast with it. So, Skedaddle, I thank you so much. You have brightened my weekend. I've have had a great time. And uh, if you guys are looking for a good vertical shooter, uh, this one's not to be overlooked. Anger Force, not not an expensive game, even when it's not on sale. I'm really enjoying it. So, bravo, Skedaddle. Thanks, man. Well, in the absence of concrete news directly pertaining to the Xbox ecosystem over the past week, we are left instead to wade through a number of different rumors that have been percolating throughout the Twitter sphere and the conversation spaces on social media and message boards. And instead of just tackling some of those, I thought instead it would be better to look at some of the bigger topics that Xbox fans might be asking themselves, uh, or at the very least looking into. And much of this comes from listener mailbag stuff. This first question comes from Game Positive YouTube, and his topic, I think, is a very relative one. It has to do with the communication strategies between Microsoft, Nintendo, and Sony. Specifically in his question, he'll call out Sony, but it was a, I thought, very pertinent topic to discuss, particularly at this point in a 2021 that looks to be likely 
to parallel 2020 in many different ways. It looks like we'll be still dealing with pandemic shelter in place for some time. And as those uh, pressures are relinquished a bit, other aspects of the gaming sphere will come relevant, particularly how companies communicate with their consumers. So let me read his question and then tackle it perhaps a bit more deeply than he initially meant for it to be. Game Positive YouTube says, 2021 is a big year for both Sony and Microsoft. It feels like they both have cannons loaded and ready to fire reveals and news to generate the hype. What's a better strategy? Bringing back inside Xbox and having several announcements leading up to E3, or have a relatively quiet spring and unload it all at E3? That is a wonderful thought base that I'm going to take a few steps further, Game Positive, because I think it's really important to look at what what has worked and not worked for Microsoft over the past few years. I think it's very fair to say that when they launched the Xbox One in 2013, it was a disaster of communication, really poorly managed expectations, poorly managed intentions. A lot of the ideas of that era have made their way into not just the Xbox console space, but PlayStation and in some ways Nintendo, I suppose. But over the course of the Xbox One generation, we saw a big change, uh, not only to hardware and software and acquisitions, but in how Microsoft communicates with their fans, with their customers, with their players, as it were. And it, this, it's this strategy of communication that I think is really interesting. They have positioned themselves to be hyper-responsive to social media spaces, to respond quite often with memes, and in many ways they have done a good job at making Xbox, Xbox gamers feel like Xbox was their friend versus a corporate entity. Uh, and, and this is embodied quite well in Phil Spencer and the way he communicates with fans. Uh, I've often m- mentioned on this show, I had the good fortune to meet him at a fan fest where, of course, it was a meet and greet. The job is to shake hands, say hello, ask the right questions. And while he did do that, we also hear him discuss a lot about his gamer score, his time playing Destiny, how he played Voodoo Vince with his daughters way back when. And as a communication strategy, that positions the brand of Xbox to be far more friendly and less cold and calculating than the reality as they likely are. Of course, things are based on a bottom line aspect of Xbox being a business. And as listeners, fans, and customers of Xbox, there is often the tendency to evangelize companies as uh, your best friend and and what's uh, th- looking out for your best interest as to you know versus their own, I should say. But that's not the case. They are looking out for their best interest, their bottom line, and their job is to sell us things. The strategy that they have taken is one of being more personable, and I wonder if that's because they were in third place in that console space despite making plenty of money. Uh, I think it's commonly accepted that they are still in third place when you look at unit sales uh, and engagement numbers. However, it, it's it's a muddied conversation, I think, a bit more. Uh, commonplace acceptance would say that, you know, Sony is in front and, or Nintendo is in front, and you could kind of argue who's in, in, in first or second, but that Xbox is taking that third place position. The engagement number argument may change that just a bit, and that could have to do with why they are communicating with us the way they do. They seem to be hyper-responsive to fans on social media and the questions that they have going forward. Microsoft has nailed quite a bit of their messaging, starting with the Game Awards in 2019. That was really where we really saw the next generation conversation, the now current generation conversation, begin, was at the Game Awards and the Xbox Series X reveal. And all from that Game Awards 2019 reveal through now to where we are, 
it's been pretty on point for Microsoft's communication spaces. They've done a very good job at managing leaks. There's that that uh, famous reaction they had to the Xbox Series S re- uh, leak and reveal where they responded with a meme and then addressed it as, within 24 hours. And that was, I think, uh, one of the high points of Xbox PR. They do a good job at being silly, at doing at, at spotlighting marginalized voices. They do a good job at spotlighting where they've fallen short in the past, spotlighting different aspects of their business. Uh, but they've made some verbal faux pas along the way. And I think those faux pas come by way of them setting themselves up to be our friend. And it is far more hurtful when you're betrayed by your friend than you are a cold and calculating corporate entity. If you look at the comparable strategies between Sony and Nintendo, Nintendo is largely silent all around, save for the occasional Nintendo Direct that I would argue is irrelevant to the majority of Nintendo fans, and yet everybody gets super excited because the company as a whole is very quiet. Their social media stays quiet. They don't engage in in silly... Uh, banter with fans or memes or responding to people with regularity and they they seem fairly detached much like a toy company uh, would be in a social media space ripe with adults sony for their part takes a bit more of a middle ground between the two but is still fairly detached if you look at their 2020 messaging the majority of the playstation 5 messaging took place towards the latter half of the year and very close to the playstation 5 reveal Whereas Microsoft was communicating all along the way. And in communicating all along the way, you open yourself up to a lot of mistakes. You invite mistakes or criticism, as it were, far more often. When Sony is being silent, we may be frustrated with that silence, but we're not angry at some bad decisions that are being made or or said. Microsoft did a bad job at setting appropriate expectations early on in the pandemic with their communication strategy, so much so that they miscommunicated and changed their minds on how often they would be communicating with us. And it's it's when they change those things or let us down, it hurts that much more because we expect a higher level of communication from them because that is the standard that they have set themselves. Think about the Halo reveal. All the communication that was involved in there, we were expecting certain things that that as a fan base I don't believe we got. Now this is not a scathing criticism. In fact, I would in large part say they've really done a great job with that communication. This is more to highlight that the more they communicate, the more they invite criticism, and that that's a fundamentally different strategy of what Sony and Nintendo are doing. It is a strategy that I appreciate. I enjoy this frequent communication back and forth, whether it be on social media, with inside Xboxes, with uh, different types of, of engagement. You see a lot of their of their employees willing to participate in discussions on Twitter, to banter around with fans, to answer questions. I mean, Jason Ronald quite commonly will, will comment on Twitter posts. I think we see Major Nelson and Jeff Rubenstein on that on Major Nelson's podcast and beyond it. Uh, answer and address questions here and there and then phil spencer himself will quite often do the same thing aaron greenberg for his part does do quite a bit of talking as well that is something that i expect from those employees and apart from a very select group within sony i'm not sure we quite see the same thing i often see Corey barlog uh, and dr uckman as it were neil Druckmann, you know mention or discuss things in their social media spaces but they are studio execs versus you know Sony first party execs, as it were. I, I know that's a, a weird 
point to take, but it feels different when Major Nelson or Jeff Rubenstein are talking and someone like Corey Barlog, of course, who, who heads up the studio that makes God of War. It just feels different. And so I, I don't know what the appropriate answer is on which one is better, but I know that I prefer frequent communication, and I recognize that the more frequent the communication, the more invitation we have as listeners, consumers, and people that engage with them to criticize what they are saying. It's much easier to criticize what is said than what is not said. Now, back to Game Positive's original question. You know, what's a better strategy? Should they be having inside Xboxes with regularity, several announcements leading up to E3? Or should they be staying relatively quiet and unload it all at E3? I would argue, personally for my preference, I would like to see one inside Xbox per quarter if those announcements are ready to go. The pandemic obviously shifts around a lot of the mentality of if it's not ready, don't share it. And that seems to be a strategy that Microsoft is trying to to take and go forward with. I think Cyberpunk taught some lessons. The Halo Infinite reveal taught some lessons. But even we've heard statements from Phil Spencer and other Xbox execs that sharing something so far ahead that it's not going to be out for years isn't a strategy they want to adopt. I would note on the side that we see that strategy employed by Sony quite often. Much of what we know for the PlayStation 5's lineup in the coming years is far away. In fact, for the PlayStation 5 and Xbox Series set of devices, we can we know a very small amount of first-party AAA games. I can think of Horizon Zero Dawn, Ratchet & Clank, which just got its release date in the summer, and Halo Infinite. Beyond that, we don't know much of anything in terms of their AAA spaces. We have ideas, we have guesstimates, but we don't know anything for this year or even technically for 2022. So the idea of having an inside Xbox, one per quarter, I think is a great one where you showcase some of the single, double, and triple A experiences that you're expecting to have for your fans within a year's time. Having one per quarter seems to be the wise move, and given that we now have as many studios as we have Game Positive in the, in that summer break for whatever the E3 equivalent announcement sets are, I think it's a great time to spotlight some of those projects that are further out. Without having a big exclusive, only Halo Infinite, which we knew would be delayed for the Xbox Series uh, S and X launches, Game Pass went from 15 million in September of 2020 to 18 million, a growth of 3 million uh, by the end of December 2020. That is, that's a lot of growth. That's a lot of growth for not having an exclusive big budget game to push your box. We've also seen that the boxes continue to sell out for demand uh, being just far outweighing that of supply. My expectation and my hope is that Xbox continues to spotlight their future products with their future, not just acquisitions, because that can't be the conversation. We need actual games. Uh, my hope is that they bring that to the forefront when they've got announcements to, uh, or, or something to show, and they do it as soon as those Xbox Series S and X sales begin to slow even a little bit. It's time now to recognize that people are invested in gaming and into Xbox for the long term. To have 18 million subscribers into your service that keeps people engaged for a longer amount of time, you need to promise them a future. Promise them a future that's equivalent to what Sony has done on their side saying, hey, you're going to get a new God of War. It won't be for a bit, but you'll get it. Hey, you're going to get the next Final Fantasy game as an exclusive. Microsoft needs the equivalent of that. They need to say, all right, we got Perfect Dark coming. Here's something we've got so far to be hyped for it. Here's a splash screen. Nintendo does this masterfully uh, 
<laughs> by accident or on purpose, I'm not sure. But when they showed that Metroid Prime 4 splash screen, I'm now looking at my dusty old Switch and thinking, man, I can't wait for Metroid 4. That thought process keeps people hyped and excited, and it keeps loyal fans excited. Here's, here's hoping that we do get more inside Xboxes in the coming year, that they're well communicated, they set expectations properly for each event, and they do have a big blowout here on, on this summer E3 equivalent. We know that Summer Game Fest will be back in some way, shape, or form, and my hope is that with the Bethesda acquisition, with the Bethesda announcements that that would have been typically a separate uh, announcement slate, a separate showcase altogether, Microsoft can put something together that, that says... Our box is one that you must own, no matter what. Speaking of that Bethesda acquisition and those Bethesda studios and potential announcements, Hypecaster wrote in asking whether or not Xbox needed to come clean about the future of ZeniMax or Bethesda exclusivity. If games will be PC and Series SX exclusive, wouldn't now be a good time to cash in on that investment, assuming a spring restock on Series SKUs is right around the corner? Hypecaster, that question is fantastic. I love it. Whether or not now is the right time to double down on just what exclusivity means with Bethesda titles. We've had the famous quote of, you know, taking it on a case-by-case basis. We've had a few, you know, showcase announcements, the idea of Indiana Jones game being on the way, recognizing that Deathloop will be honored as a PS4 exclusive for some time, or PS5 exclusive for some time, I should say. Uh, Whether or not they need to come clean on it does not need to happen now. I don't think in a world where you've got Series S and X's selling out without any exclusive conversation, you need to rush anything. Wait, read the tea leaves, let the ink dry on that deal, figure out just how far off the projects uh, theoretically are, how far off they can afford to be, so you're not trying to make some fiscal year mess and then releasing a broken or, or buggy game, particularly when it has the Bethesda name attached to it. You want that name to be strong. Uh, in launching under its new umbrella of Xbox Game Studios. There's a lot to unpack with that. But as to to their messaging of whether or not you should have a, a clear expectation of whether or not the, the games are going to be exclusive, they can wait on that. The will-they-won't-they they approach has people discussing it, and that is building hype around it. I do not enjoy the discussions of, you know, we want to take this away from the PlayStation gamer. We want this to be only for Xbox because, you know, we, we don't want the other side to have that. That's not really the mentality I like to have. The mentality I tend to have myself is, is Xbox going to be honoring my dollar and my time in their ecosystem by way of having exclusive IP, exclusive games, and exclusive services? Right now, they're, name, they're nailing parts of that. They're really falling short on the games aspect, which we know. And I would argue they've done a great job at responding to. We've got EA Play dropping in there. They dropped the the Bethesda news right around the time they said Halo Infinite would be delayed indefinitely. That was prior to them giving us the November release window. But they, they got people excited for Game Pass and then grew 3 million in three months. If you're going a million a month, that's some impressive growth. I don't think they need to have the conversation with us yet uh, or, or come clean, as you put it, about exclusivity for the time being. They need to do that when it's time to occupy some headlines, when they've got a game to show, when Starfield or, or some other game is is the big must-have game. That's when they come forward with it. And 
each week I'm asked this type of question, you know, will they, won't they be exclusive? What do you want? And each week I tend to have a slightly different answer based on information. But right now, in my mind, I think it's time to to push the idea when, when they're ready to say, hey, yes, this game is going to be exclusive. Don't spend $7.5 billion and not bring people to your service. There's always the idea that you release it day and date into Game Pass. It's exclusive to your platform, and if it doesn't do well, then you release it later on on the PlayStation products. I don't see a problem with that. I don't think that's a bad thing. I think there's a lot of ways to to do some PR dancing and PR backflips to make it sound like you're the good guy in that scenario, and I'm I'm okay with that. I'm fine with it. Honor would already exist in Fallout 76 and several others, but offer perks and, and bonuses for being within the Xbox world. Sony right now comfortably pays for quite a few perks for its PlayStation Plus members uh, in lots of multiplayer crossplay games. Why not give Xbox that same benefit? Great question, Hypecaster. Thank you for writing in on that one. Uh, and, and I love the topic. I love the topic. One that will keep going around uh, for some time to go. Earlier in the show, I mentioned that rumor mill, and it was in full force this past week, and oftentimes those rumors are fueled by the smallest nugget of information. Uh, Right around the time last week's episode debuted, there was a nugget of a job listing that seemed to suggest Halo would have a spinoff game of some kind and do something separate from Halo Infinite's uh, project listings, and... As much as people got excited about that, it was very quickly debunked that it was just a Halo Infinite project, perhaps not specific to the main game, I don't know, nor do I really care at the moment. It would absolutely make sense for 343 and Microsoft and Xbox to capitalize on a lot of the Halo marketing and and the transmedia discussions that are going on with the Halo show, the movies, everything like that to do another Halo game. Not necessarily a Halo Wars 3, but something new altogether. There's a lot of discussions about that. I've said a lot of my ideas here on this show prior to. But it seems like that specific rumor went uh, went the way of the Dodo. It didn't seem to have any weight to it. However, Dano wrote in on this one, and he said, What do you think 343 can do to hype fans up and non-Halo fans up until its release. Obviously, multiplayer is going to be free, but there's no story. There is a story mode as well. What would you like to see or hear? Personally, I'd hope for a beta announcement soon, or a flight for people that, to sign up, like using, uh, like they do in the Halo Master Chief Collection. Dan, there's a lot to unpack there. The basic core of your question is: How do you keep people excited for this game that's been delayed by a year and already has marketing and toys out there? Uh, Goodness gracious, what an undertaking that is. I think the the initial hype is gone. That's already gone away. We saw the character in Fortnite. We saw a lot of the toys released. We saw the cans of, of Monster and the codes being out there on different types of foods. And the damage is long since done. If I wanted to keep people excited for it, we I would look to Halo fans first. You want to keep the Halo fans feeling rewarded. The Master Chief Collection continues to be at its peak level, even a Halo 3 map that had never been released in Halo 3 proper but existed in the cancelled project Halo Online. That's making its way into the Master Chief Collection. The Master Chief Collection is keeping current Halo diehards happy. That is good. Now, as far as uh, bringing in new fans or people with a kind of... Uh, outsider interest. We know that Joseph Staten's team is going to be doing a monthly release of uh, what they call it, Infinite Halo Infinite Drops or something like, I don't even remember what it was. It was last week that I said it or so. They're going to be doing a monthly update, right, talking about different things. But as far as keeping 
fans that are that are excited for the game but maybe not diehard Halo, I don't think you put out a beta until you're ready. Maybe some inside flighting, and we know they are doing that. They actually already had that sign-up set. Uh, in fact, Ainsley Bowden from Season Gaming sent me the info, and I, I politely declined to do it simply because I did not want to experience Halo Infinite in a broken state. I just, I'm not that type of gamer any longer. Betas don't really thrill me anymore. We know they're going to be doing some different types of flighting for the online. As long as that game, when it launches, is great to perfect, somewhere in that masterpiece-esque range, they're going to have no problem bringing people to the forefront. They'll have the story for lore diehards like myself. They'll have a free multiplayer to let people engage in it. Um, they simply need to make the game great. No way around it. I mean, and I don't like the Metacritic idea, but if you were to apply that logic, you need a 9 or better, right? It just has to be that good uh, in, in that space. And that'll bring people back. You don't need the early hype any longer. The damage is done on that. Instead, you just need to make a great game. And I, it feels like when you delay a game over a year and, and say it'll be ready when it's ready, it feels like they're doing that and they're doing it earnestly. The story's done. They're all doing all polish for a year. And if they're being truthful, I think you've got uh, a great experience to look forward to. But I, I wouldn't stress too much about trying to keep people involved for a year because it'll just exhaust people. Instead, you know you've got one of the biggest exclusives that, are, that is going to come out this year. It'll do a lot of the work itself. I wouldn't stress too much on that one, Dan. But good question. What's going on, everybody? This is Malik Prince from Team Xbox, and you're listening to the Xbox Expansion Pass. The next question comes from Brazbit. And Brazbit writes in with, I've got nothing. This is the first generation since the original Xbox was released that I have not felt the need to rush to stay current. It's the first time I didn't get Microsoft's latest offering day one, and I've not seen anything convincing me on any of them to make the jump yet. Now, Brazbit's idea here is essentially that he either has fatigue for what is now current gen or simply no desire to jump into the latest, greatest zeitgeist for gaming. And I think that is fantastic, Brazbit. Your gut reaction might be to feel a little silly or frustrated by the idea that you're not rushing out to play the latest and greatest as so many are. However, if you're not feeling the call to do that just yet and you're enjoying gaming where you are, embrace that and enjoy the the benefit of games that aren't as expensive and the lack of pressure on you to be up to date. I sometimes think in the gaming space we push ourselves, particularly content creators, to play the latest greatest thing and that comes often at the expense of what we were just trying to enjoy a month earlier. Right now I am I'm still neck deep in Hitman content. I'm having a blast with it and I don't want the next big game to come out. And I know uh, my good friend, Lord James Suddy, uh, he owns land in Scotland. That's why you have to call him Lord. If you call, uh, I'm sorry, if you look at Lord James Suddy, he wasn't able to get an Xbox Series X at launch and only just in this past week did get one. He was still able to play all of his games with us. We still played Call of Duty and Fortnite and Sea of Thieves with Suddy just as much as we will now in this coming uh, week and months after it. And I think that's the best part about this blended generation, about the way these consoles and games are rolling out. For the time being, Brasbit, you're afforded a lot of leeway on what games you play with people and solo. It's always cheaper to hold off, man. The early adopters always pay more. Not just that, they're, they're pushed to do the latest and greatest thing. 
if you're not feeling that call, I'm uh, one, quite proud of you and pleased for you, and I don't think you need to feel the rush. The pressure should be on Xbox, and any other console maker for that matter, to make you want it. And the more they vie for your dollar and attention, the better the product is going to be, at least in theory. I don't think you should feel any pressure, bud. I think you should enjoy gaming wherever and however you want to on whatever platforms you are enjoying them on right now and and save your money until they tell you you have to play this game and you agree with them. Simple as that, man. Simple as that. This last question this week was a very personal one, and I really enjoyed it. I I like these personal questions, I suppose, uh, from time to time to show up into the show because when you do a solo show, it can be hard to connect with fans outside of just the gaming space. But it's really a, a, a great one, and it comes from Rick Spartan Edition over on Twitter. And he says, Hi, Luke. Now that you have appearances in big podcasts like Xcast, Xbox Chatter Days, which is the Windows Central Gaming podcast I just did this past week with Miles, it was amazing, and a Luke Box question, a Luke Box, a Loot Box question on Unlocked. Congrats, by the way. What are the differences in being a presenter and a guest, and what other Xbox shows or podcasts would you like to be in? Oh, that I, I love stuff like this, Rick. So thank you for writing in uh, on this personal question. The differences between being a presenter and a guest in large part have to do with the way that I prepare. In doing this, the show solo where I have to talk for 20, 30, 40 minutes at a time, I have to research a lot of these topics well and at the very least know what it is I'm going to say to you in order and what makes sense. I don't have to have the right answers, as it were, but I do have to have more than a casual knowledge about what what I'm going to say before I say it, because I have to carry the conversation solo. Uh, I often use a lot of the skills that come with being a teacher in my day-to-day job when I'm doing the solo portions of the show. When I'm doing interviews with guests, there's a lot of preparation in that as well. I often research their careers, where we've seen them publicly, what they might be doing uh, privately, but but not secretly in, in the gaming space. And that is to say, you know, w- what are they working on or what have they worked on that isn't necessarily all common knowledge, but is still out there, right? Not any type of not investigative type thing, just neat little uh, Easter eggs about their careers that they might enjoy sharing. That's what it's like to do work as a presenter overall. Just ask guests questions, be researched, and be knowledgeable. When it comes to being a guest myself, part of it is a matter of taking a breath. I was extremely nervous when I went on the Kind of Funny X cast because I very much look up to uh, the people involved in Kind of Funny's projects. I've been a longtime listener of a lot of Greg Miller's content. I, I really have a strong uh, affinity for Snowbike Mike's attitude. I really respect a lot of what Gary Witta has done. It was great to meet Barrett. Um, and my hope is that I honored their honored their their faith in me to come on the show well. And I would like to, to I suppose, go back to, to theirs and keep doing other different types of shows like XCast, like Chatterdays. Uh, being on Unlocked was a great privilege to me, even though it was one of those submit-your-own-question things. To be part of the loot box question was cool because I really have listened to Ryan McCaffrey since his arrival at IGN. Those are a matter of being relaxed and willing to answer questions and knowing that it's okay to mess up and smile and be silly. And I think in both cases, Rick, acknowledging when you don't know something is the best strategy. If you try to BS your way through it, I think the audience picks up on that. Just as, again, I referenced my teaching career, students know 
when a teacher is not being honest or, or truthful about something or if they're just BSing their way through something. And in my classroom, we often say that BS stands for bad stuff because I use that term often and I don't want people to, to think that I'm pretending to know something. And so those are the big differences for me. And as far as what shows I would like to be on, I would imagine that some of them I don't even know yet. I found out about Xbox Chatter Days and, and Miles' work at Windows Central Gaming. I found out about that show by way of meeting him on somebody else's show. And in doing that, I realized that I found a great other person that I wanted to get to know and wanted to spend some time talking about games with. So I think a lot of them I just don't know about yet. I have a strong affinity for a lot of content creators. As far as the big boys, I think it would be a dream to be on Podcast Unlocked because I do look up to Ryan McCaffrey and Brandon Tyrell and Miranda Sanchez so much. Um, I, I think, you know, Pipe Dream, I would love to join Greg Miller on Kind of Funny Games Daily simply because I've listened to him for so long. And it's a tough spot for them to be in, I think, when you have a content creator like myself who does things as a hobby but not pushes to be a career. I don't want this to be a career for me. But then you have other people that are fighting tooth and nail to make great content at a very high level that all are desperate to be on shows like that for the spotlight of the platform. And I sympathize with them for sure. Because if I were uh, in the role of deciding who gets to be a guest on on a very high, pro- high profile show, where does it where do you put your faith? Who do you want to be on? I would love to be on Kind of Funny Games Daily. I don't necessarily want to be on there at the expense of someone who needs that break in their career because mine is a hobby. And recognizing that, I think, is is important for me to keep expectations in check. I have cried tears when I've seen some of the numbers not hitting where I wanted to in the early part of the show. And I have cried tears of joy when I've seen certain numbers uh, after a certain interview or whatnot. But the reality is I am fulfilled by XEP and the listenership when they engage with me, when they talk to me. I had so many questions written in this week. Man, that means more to me than any number of listeners or any appearance on any show. When people are willing to just talk to me about games, that's what I love. That's why I do this. And so it's a matter of, I suppose, uh, validity and feeling, feeling worthwhile. But my happiest moments from XEP come from people being willing to dialogue with me, to respond to thoughts that I have said on the show. You know, like, hey, Luke, I disagree with you on this. Or, Luke, I really like this point you made. Both of those things mean, hey, I listened and I recognized you weren't being, uh, weren't attacking anything. And I recognized, recognized you were trying to work hard to bring an insight. So I suppose that's it. But uh, yeah, yeah, great question, man. I like that you made me think. And I often try to take these questions really a, a step further than uh, a casual answer. And I hope you guys appreciate it. Before I send us into this incredible interview that was, I think it ran rather long and in the best ways with David Bateson, who voices uh, Agent 47 in all of the Hitman games to date. Uh, I want to let you guys know I've been playing Apex Legends, courtesy of, Moran- of uh, Rihanna Manuel telling me to to basically pick the sticks back up. I've been playing with my buddies Kevin Joe in that, having a good old time. I am rusty. I have been playing Shovel Knight King of Cards, courtesy of a different interview I did uh, that I still, I'm going to sit on for another week and in, in, uh, let that be the week after, I think. Uh, so we hear from Yacht Club Games later on, but, and I've been having a blast with it. You know, King of Cards is a really good Shovel Knight game. I'm digging it. I think you guys should try it out. Uh, and beyond that, it's, it's Fortnite. I love the characters they're dropping in, and I'm loving this Anger Force Reloaded uh, game as well. 
Guys, I hope that you enjoy this interview with David Bateson. As always, I do appreciate you listening and writing in. You can find this show on any and all podcast services. It is available now over on YouTube as well, just as a strict audio file. Look forward to more interviews in the coming weeks. You can find me on Twitter at InsipidGhost, and you can email me insipidghost at gmail.com. Please stay safe. Have a wonderful rest of your week. Enjoy the interview. Take care. Alrighty, now it is my privilege to welcome Agent 47 himself, the definitive hitman, David Bateson. David, how are you today? I'm very well, thanks. And um, looking forward to this. I love interviews. <laughs> Sounds well, good. That's awesome. I'm thoroughly looking forward to it. It has been something that I've been very excited to do uh, since putting my hands on Hitman 3 of late. And you, of course, have been the hitman for... A very long time. You've been the voice of Agent 47 since, I believe, the series debut back in 2000. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, I can't believe how time flies. Eh? But, um, yeah, it was originally just my voice. And and I noticed the striking resemblance to myself from the, from the get-go. And then after a couple of games, I was... You know, performance captured in, uh, into the game using my face. So he's he's come to look a little more like me uh, over the years, which is a bit scary because I can, I can see his face and see the smile or in the eyes and going, shit, that's me. God. <laughs> but yeah, it's cool. I'm happy. Well, there's, there's so much to break down in that idea. Uh, tell me, when did you... Or how did you first land the part of Agent 47? Yeah, you know, I wish I could say it was it was between me and 3,000 other people. And, you know, <laughs> we've, we've, it was the last man standing in a, in a gladiator pit or, you know, <laughs> something dramatic. But, no, um, I was just in the right place at the right time uh, in the sense that uh, I was just in a studio in Copenhagen doing a voiceover, and uh, they knocked on the door, and next door they were doing the com- computer graphics for their first game, mm-hmm. uh, this company. And they said, listen, I'm, the guys are, they were looking for a voice uh, actor. Would you mind coming, have a look, and see if that was something for you? And, you know, that's the, that's the irritatingly, really uninteresting, <laughs> true story. Uh, of course, um you know, if 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 uh, if they hadn't liked what they heard, uh, then I, obviously I, w- I wouldn't have got it. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, those kind of opportunities just can uh, land on your plate sometimes. I say sometimes. It's happened once in my life, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm very grateful. But you, you can't almost explain. There's no justification to it. You know, you're just kind of getting, wow, I'll give it a go. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was fortunate they, they liked what they heard. Well, what guidance did they give you about what they wanted to hear, I suppose? Because, you know, well, you were good, next door. Go ahead. Yeah, that's actually, a, that's actually a good question. I've never been asked that. Way, way to go, Luke. Um, there we go. Yeah, no, I, um, you know, I, I, I made a kind of, uh, 
I've realized over the years when doing voiceovers, obviously I, I take all the direction I'm offered mm-hmm. um, and, and listen to it because, hey, they're paying the bills and um, I'm there to perform a service. But mm-hmm. if I remember rightly, I don't think I was given a guideline or, or, or I, I just kind of, uh, which is how I approach a lot of voiceovers. If there isn't too much directing or, or creative directive, you know, di- advice mm-hmm. coming my way, you, you need to kind of make a um, a decision in your head and and really commit to it 100%. If you don't, then you do something that's a bit half-assed, and mm-hmm. then they will go, well, uh, well, what was that, you know? I don't know. You and it wasn't quite. It was like in between two genres. What you're trying to please the world? Well, you can't. The point being, I saw the graphics of what was Hong Kong, mm-hmm. seen from Codename Forty Seven, first game, and this is actually in, uh, in I think the, the fall of uh, two thousand and uh, where am I? Where am I now? No, <laughs> nineteen ninety nine. <laughs> um, obviously several months before the game came out um, and I thought it just reminded me of it had a Blade Runner feel to it mm-hmm. all these dark shadows and sort of Japanese cartoon type uh, style mm-hmm. and and a part of the Blade Run- the intrigue with Blade Runner it has this sort of throwback to 50s and 60s you know Harrison mm-hmm. Ford's dressed in you know, you know, in a, a, a trench coat, a raincoat from from another mm-hmm. era, wearing a, a trilby for crying out loud, you know. And you're going, what? This is the 23rd century. Um, but I love that, and so it reminded me of the Philip Marlowe detective stories t- type of look and feel from the mm-hmm. 50s. Not that I was around at that time, but you know, so early films you saw in black and white and had that a bit sort of. Um, 39 steps maybe and, and just these long shadows and, and so I, I went instinctively with a a, a kind of a very broad sort of Philip Marlowe you know I walked into the room you know the room you know, the door was ajar mm-hmm. <laughs> you know um, and because also the sentences were also very minimalistic so it had this kind of distance to it, you know, there was there was nothing was said that was unnecessary. So it was all in all. I just had to make I made some made some quick decisions in the read I had to do for it, uh, and and recorded it like that. And that's what they got without anyone, as far as I remember, being there to sort of guide me. And then from that, obviously, they were interested. And then when we came to record it. Uh, you know, there were people in the room, you know, that mm-hmm. sort of try like this. And it, that kind of style sort of stayed pretty much the way to go, in the, especially in the early games. Mm-hmm. Well, those early games, your character is largely quite stoic and rather, you know, as you said, succinct, direct, very short sentences. Yeah. Uh, I feel like we've heard your voice a bit more as the games have progressed over time. Do you yeah. get a sense of that evolution in the character when you read for him? Yeah, yeah big time. I have to say, it really kicked in in the in this trilogy of the, mm-hmm. the last. This is the eighth game, so it's <laughs> but the trilogy story, which is which ends with uh, Hitman Three. Um, mm-hmm. 
I think it was after the yeah, I think it was after Hitman One. Uh, it was they, when I got the script for Hitman Two, uh, and they said, "David, you know, bear with us. We've got an idea." <laughs> and I went, "What?" They said, uh, "Look at all these words and, and sentences." And I, I was, I have to admit, totally against it. I said, "Really? What the hell? He's got verbal diarrhea, you know." Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it was all these non-secretary, what I would dare to say, meaningless sentences he says or can come to say uh, when he's in disguise. Mm-hmm. So instead of him, like, you know, taking out a waiter and then just putting, taking the waiter's clothes and then wandering through a room with lots of guests and just, and, and the player just kind of going, okay, let's go. I'll go over here and I'll check out the bar. Is there anything there I could use? No. Oh, there's an ice pick that could come in. You know, you know that that's all that stuff's going on in, in in the player's own head in silence and and surrounding atmospherics. They said, listen, we want to include uh, all these kind of like dumbass sentences, like you know, okay, would you like more ice, sir? You know. <laughs> Another slice of lemon for you, madam. Oh, that'll be, you know. Okay, what the hell? It's, what happened to the silent assassin? Um, their reason being, they wanted, they believed that the player would feel even more uh, interaction with Agent 47 if there was this kind of small talk with um with passers-by and even with, with, the, with the potential targets. You know, there was, they just thought it was cooler that, they, that there wasn't just this long, long periods of, of silence from Agent 47. So, and you know what? They were 100% right. And I, only when I got to play the second game, or some of it, did I realize, shit, that really does work. You really kind of feel you're on this journey together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's it's fine that he's just he's shooting the breeze talking to people um, because he's in disguise and here's the thing you know Agent 47 is not a good actor <laughs> he's <a> thing. <laughs> no he's not he's really crap in the sense that um, when I would be in disguise you know I, I sometimes back in the early days I would go hey should I just should I disguise his voice and you know, I've, I mean, I have taken out a Russian bodyguard. Should I, should, when I'm asked a question, should I go into some kind of card Russian accent with, with an American twang to it or something? And every time I said, no, 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 just kind of say it a bit stoically and, and a bit badly, um, with your own accent. And I went, oh, you mean act bad? And I went, yeah, basically. And so that, in a way, that had a charm. To it, um, and uh, I think it's fine. The fans accept that, that you know, whatever disguise he's taken, if it's a mechanic in the Miami Grand Prix or if it's you know some, a cowboy outfit, he, he just he, you know people accept that he's not you know that he that he is who he's pretending to be without him having to go into a range of bizarre dialects and accents and stuff, and that's quite fun. It is quite fun, and I'm thinking about the times that I've put on various costumes and you know become a mascot or whatnot, and I'm like, I totally don't pull this off, but it's so charming and endearing, and I love it. 
Yeah, I, I, I just, I feel very protective. Uh, don't get me started about age forty-seven as a person. You know, I love him, and but there was one particular scene in Paris when he's backstage at the fashion show, and he comes across a very outrageous uh, uh, clothing designer, or, or, or what was it? Was it a someone a makeup artist? Uh, and this guy was so flamboyant and sort of going, well, hello, what have we got here? <laughs> it was a charming moment because suddenly, I, 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 as Agent 47, he just did not have any information in this area. Mm-hmm. And his replies were kind of really awkward and, and dorky. Mm-hmm. And, and it was lovely. It, it, it was very endearing. To uh, to see him kind of get through this awkward moment, going, I'm, I just don't know what I'm doing backstage at a fashion show. You know, <laughs> I should not be here. You know, and it was it had a charm to it, which I hope comes across. It it does, and it's endearing at that. And as I hear you talk about the the protectiveness of Forty Seven and just how how much of this character is you, did <laughs> you and and you you mentioned that you you know. You didn't like the idea at first of, of having more lines and, and that being yeah. stoic was good. Did you get to offer notes on the character development much over time? Yeah, um, I, not really. I will say this. There's been a couple of times, but literally only a few times. I think we had a, a creative director uh, on Absolution. And that game, there'd been a a six-year break. Mm -hmm. And I can't remember. He's no longer with IO Interactive. But I remember having a a couple of disagreements with him in the sense that he would say, hey, try it like this. And I'm going, Agent 47 wouldn't say it like that. Okay, you know, you're the Mm -hmm. boss. Of course I will. I'm not going to, like, disagree and throw a temper tantrum. I'll, I'll be in my Winnebago. You know, um, <laughs> but uh, on the whole, it's been a, a an incredible journey of of growing synergy between the writers and the, the creators, of, of director or creative director, and myself over the years because we've basically grown up together. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I I think as far as I know, I'm the only one from the original. I, I, I might be doing someone a real disservice there, but I'm pretty pretty sure you know that the the the, the latest batch of writers have been on the, the series for many years, but um, but not from the start. So maybe ten, twelve years or something or, or more. But we've kind of grown up together, you know, sort of mm-hmm. all got married and had children and and come with. Uh, a kind of um it's a bit of a chicken and egg thing in the mm-hmm. sense that what came first the um did they write a line because they could hear how David Bateson would say this line as agent forty seven did they write the line because this is the line agent forty seven would say mm-hmm. or you know uh, and I think it's a kind of a it's a it's a kind of blend of of the two that um of course they know they they set out to write a, a fantastic story and create these characters 
um, and write the, the dialogue for these different characters. But there is maybe a subconscious element of it where they go, oh, yeah, I could hear David say this, mm-hmm. you know, um, as Agent 47. Yeah, this would be cool. This, this, this would work. Um, because sometimes uh, it's been said or it comes out in a recording session, oh, I wrote this line and then I thought afterwards, ah, there's too many words in it. I'll take out some of these words. And I thought, that's interesting. They, they instinctively wrote a line and then they could hear Agent 47 sort of saying it and realize there's way too many extra words here. We need to... So they they, had, they come with knowledge of, of the character or the personality of Agent 47. So it's a, mm, it is a kind of what, what came first. We'd grown up together, so um, the, the creatives and myself. So it's a bit of both. <laughs> I'm so fascinated by that because you don't hear about an actor and a team and a company being together for two decades to create oh, a character. Yeah, I mean... Uh, <laughs> Does that mean you're on a first name basis with these guys? Like, is yeah, how, I mean, how how's the relationship there? It's I mean I feel like a bit of a cheat to be honest in the sense that you know they work on a game for years before it gets to the recording studio. You know, they're yeah. working on design level and, and a new engine and you know, uh, you know how can we make this this sound bit really big and. Uh, what a, you know, I've even, I've joked with them several times about that over the years. I'm going, God, I'd just love to have been in the room when you came up with this level. What the hell were you smoking, you know, or <laughs> drinking? That must be a fun process, you know, mm-hmm. just, um, sitting in a room together and going, okay, what is possible? Okay. And where, where should we go this time? And, uh, can't we do this? And then hearing, a, you know, some level design again. No, no, this is, that'll, this will be too much, too much movement. It'll make the pixels hack or, or, you know, come with their reasons why something can't be done more. Um, so I do in this, in, in a little bit, you know, I come along at the last stage. Um, and I, when we get to the recording, I kind of turn up every six weeks, maybe eight weeks. Um, over a period of four to six, four to six months to record. Maybe it's close, closer to six months, really. Um, where we record a level at a time. And then mm-hmm. the next time we meet up, we'll do pickups from the, the previous session and then, uh, take on a new level or so. So, you know, whereas they've been working on something for years and especially with this trilogy, they, they had that plotted out. To a very large extent, as a, as a one, as a one overriding, you know, story arc, uh, you know, from from 2014, you know, the, just when we're leading up to the launch of uh, World of Assassination, the first game, it, it, it's a long time. You know, so that I do feel like sometimes, as I say, just coming in and going, okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I'm going to help you out now. I'm going to do all this hard work. And I, I sit there for three, four-hour sessions um, over a, you know, about a six-month period. Mm-hmm. That's all I do. They do the rest. 
that's, that's, it's so neat though. Just, and I go back to the, the 20 years in this role and then working with them. That's, that's awesome. And earlier in the interview, you mentioned performance capture. My understanding yeah. is that began in, in for the 2016 game. How does your preparation for that role differ from, say, the Hitmans of yore? Yeah, um, well, I'm horrified and sad to say I've never done motion capture of Agent 47. Mm. Uh, but I knew that the, the stuntman who's done it for most of the time is a very good friend of mine, mm-hmm. uh, a Danish stuntman uh, actor. And um, that was kind of weird because, you know, I'd meet up with him sometimes for a drink or something and say, hey, I was... <laughs> I was playing you today. And I went, I beg your pardon. You know, <laughs> yeah, I've, I've crawled up walls and I've rolled downstairs and, and man, I've, I've had a busy day. And I'm going, what? Yeah, you can't, you, you wait until you see what you get up to, you know. Only once when I was at a voice conference in Atlanta, Georgia, back in, shit, man, what was that? 14, I think. 2014, and I got a call from Copenhagen saying, listen, could you swing by London on your way back? And I went, well, why? He said, well, we've got a studio book for for some serious motion capture, uh, and we want you to do it. And I went, yes, I'll rearrange my flights as quickly as possible. And then went back to my uh, yeah, recording sessions, uh, uh, seminars and, and stuff about about voiceover industry in the States. And next time I came into my hotel room, there was a message saying, you know, call IO Interactive. I wish I did so. And they went, stand down, stand down. I hope you haven't rearranged your tickets yet. I went, no, why? It's okay, it's all off. Don't worry, you don't have to. Don't have. I said, no, I really want to. I Listen, it's no problem. No. Mm-hmm. So, no, I've, I've, I've only done uh, what I would call performance capture with a with a helmet and a you know kind of a GoPro on my face. Does that change the way you look at the role, you know, having the camera on you versus what you would do uh, early on or have you had to adjust your performance in general to allow them for yeah. that? Um now here's an interesting thing. You know, the microphone, the technology of a microphone this metal object that you stand in front of and just record, that has not changed in 100 plus years. Hmm. It's a bit like, it's crazy. Um, so, of, of course, all the, the, uh, the software and, the, and, of course, the hardware have evolved. But the, the physical idea of recording and doing a voice acting is to stand in front of a microphone and try not hit it with your waving arms and and make too many pops into the, the pop filter and uh, and just say your lines while an engineer records them. And that is a bit mind-boggling when you think of what else mankind has achieved in the last hundred years. You know? mm-hmm. um, it's a bit like, you know, hey, we, we developed the piston engine. Good idea. It takes a lot of oil. We call it petrol. Oh, okay. And then only 100 years later, do we get around to, hey, this, that's stupid. We can do this electricity thing. What? Mm-hmm. Shit. Why didn't we do that earlier? I don't know. Mm-hmm. No one asked. You know? um, <laughs> so, so the point, what I'm trying to get at is that the, 
I, I started to think about how, how could we give this a, a bit more atmosphere. And I know that the engineers can, you know, uh, do everything. You know, lower the voice and put some echo on it and make it sound metallic and whatever, if, in, if, according to the uh, the environment that Agent Forty Seven is finds himself in. Mm-hmm. But um, one day I was recording and there was no window into my recording booth. It was just a four-walled thing, and they heard me saying something. Uh, which wasn't the dialogue. You heard this kind of like heavy breathing, just or really, really quiet breathing, very close to the microphone. And they actually stopped the tape and went, David, what are you doing? Because <laughs> it's kind of a bit suspect. And I said, listen, he's about to, he's hiding behind a curtain. And he's about to step out and strangle this guy. He's just the other side of the curtain. Um, uh, right now I've got my eyes closed and I'm just almost swallowing the microphone just to kind of, I think that would be useful for a player to hear through his headphones or her headphones. And they went, oh yeah, shit yeah, because that really reads, that really, that kind of proximity thing. Mm-hmm. And it's back, you know, back to my original supposition that not much has really changed. Until the last few years with motion capture and performance capture, that you could really uh, strap a microphone and onto you in a, in, a, in a rubber suit with spots on you, and you are suddenly an orc giving instructions <laughs> on that. And uh, you you can look at a, a monitor and see yourself as an orc or as an avatar or whatever, mm-hmm. and and you can see the your lips move as you speak. And, because the camera's on your face doing performance capture work. And so it's only now, dare I say it, I say now, I, I mean within the last maybe five years, seven years or so, that, and that it's really evolved the recording process of, mm-hmm. uh, of, 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 you know, reading lines into a, on, on a script, you know, making them come alive. That's brilliant. That's a very good and a very good point. Apt at that, and you know, I'm I'm postulating all these scenarios where you're in the recording booth versus you know performance capture and the motion capture and what yeah. that would have looked like. And you know, one of uh one of your you should know one of your diehard fans, a friend of mine named Dan Rodriguez, when he found out I was going to be speaking to you, oh, yeah. uh, he ha- had to know. Do you own a classic Hitman suit? And if so, do you walk around throwing coins at people to distract them? <laughs> yeah, I go around strangling people on the weekends just to kind of <laughs> get me in the mood. You know, actually, no, I do have a hitman suit and I use it. Do you really? Uh, I do actually. I have two two hitman ties. I've got the tie pin. Uh, you know, I got a, a barcode tattoo thing on the back. You know, um, I got you know, black gloves. I did an interview a couple of weeks ago for a, a, a great uh, uh, shop that sells everything, but mainly kind of you know uh, computer games and, and consoles and stuff like that. A Danish company, and they flew me to Aalborg, which is like one of the northernmost cities of uh, 
of Denmark. You know, we're talking like, whew, well, a 45-minute flight. Woo-hoo. Um, and, you know, the interview was done in, in, a, in a big warehouse just to kind of give it some atmosphere. And it ends with uh, the interview coming to an end, and I, I, I go to leave and I say thanks, and, and then he says something to the camera. And then when he goes to leave, the doors are locked and the lights go out and he's wandering <laughs> around this huge, you know, hall going, hello, you know, and then with the cutaways, you see my footsteps and you see the back of my head and you, you don't quite see my face for a bit. Um, and obviously I'm stalking him and, and I fiber wire him and, and, and strangle him. And there's a funny, but of course that was, you know, when I, uh, I didn't, Fly on the plane dressed in my suit because that would have been a bit of a bit upsetting for certain people probably. But I or awesome realized that I I forgot on the way back that I still had the tattoo on the back of my head. So uh, that definitely got some attention on the plane. And that's awesome. You do get recognized in that way. Um, If I wore the suit all the time, all the time, but uh, on occasions. Then I was, there's no doubt. Then people go, Oh, you're not, you look like that guy. I think, No shit, you are. That's you, you know. Um, <laughs> so that's fun. I, I remember arriving in, in Reykjavik, Iceland, uh, last two summers ago. Well, two, I think I was there in October or something, September, October, for their, uh, computer game, uh, uh, conference, uh, event and, I was met at the airport by three bodyguards dressed like me in, uh, as Agent 47. And they had a, they'd hired a security company, eight of them, eight blokes, and they all were dressed as Agent 47. Now that, that's pretty impressive to walk around anywhere in Reykjavik with these eight guys dressed like clones, you know, or, mm-hmm. but it scared the crap out of people. I, I wanted to meet people in, in the, and, and, Talk to them and stuff. They all kept kept far away from me. I was going, guys, you're scaring away traffic here. I'm here to, you know, talk about gaming. Oh, okay. We'll stand a bit back. You know. so, and they're just as intimidating several feet back. I would in imagine. a way, yeah. You know, it's just, uh, it, it was cool. It was fun. And they were mm-hmm. great. But if I, um, if I was to wear the suit, uh, kind of pretty much anywhere, certainly in Denmark, I would immediately be, um, there would be no doubt as to who I was. I, I wouldn't be, oh, you're playing Donald Trump. Uh, no, just because I have a red tie. Um, <laughs> you know, they'll be going, oh, you're Asian person. Fundamentally different people, I would imagine, uh, <laughs> to say the least. Yep. I'll, t- I'll temper my own reaction there. Uh, two more questions for you, David. Cool, First, why is Agent 47, why has he remained such a steadfast character for so long? I mean, he is an iconic character. You said you get recognized when you are Agent 47. And I would know, I would know the Hitman 47, no matter what. Is it the tattoo? Is it the head? Is it the tie? Why has he remained such an iconic character in gaming? Nothing. You know, damn it, you've done a great, nice one. This is another question that's never been asked. That really gives me pause for thought because one as an as an actor, you it's very very rare that you get a chance to play the same character in your career for such a long time. It's just unheard of. You're shooting some kind of 
cheesy soap or something, you know. Um, uh, so there's just a, a personal element of being attached to a character that you then grow to like and going, wow, I'd, just, I'd love to go and have a beer with him. You know, mm-hmm. How was your day? Oh, don't ask. You know, <laughs> I don't want to know. <laughs> but um, here's the thing. I think Agent 47 and that kind of uh, lasting interest quality that, that genuinely seems to have... Uh, uh, you know, made a, a connection with, with fans. It's not just a, you know, a, a, it's not, it's just a, it's not just a, a personality free uh, character. You know, he, I think, I would describe it like this. I would think that the uh, Hitman game or the Hitman franchise, um, there is something Indefinable. This sounds really kind of wanky or weird. There's something about it that is that it's Agent Forty Seven has become greater than the sum of the parts. Now I don't know. I don't know how to explain it any other way. He has a genuine life all of his own, mm-hmm. uh, which really appeals to such an incredible broad cross section of. Uh, people from all over the planet. Now, what was the individual, what's, what was the, the, the defining thing that made him so attractive or interesting or... I, I can't place my, my finger on that. Uh, uh, obviously, some of it is, is in my portrayal or you know, trying to go for a, some kind of mm, toughness, but a, kind of a melancholy, a little haunting... And combined with a really dark sense of humor and a kind of almost a curiosity about life, really, sometimes. Um, and, and obviously that the rest of it is, is, is every single person working their guts off in uh, interactive, doing all the, doing all the rest, which is you know, 99%. And somewhere along the line, that, I mean, because, you know, this game could have stopped after two games. I remember the first game, Codename 47, it received some really excellent reviews. Mm-hmm. But as I seem to recall, it didn't, you know, sell ballistically, you know, well. It was respected on every account. But across the boards, they were saying, this is a game that's not dumbing down. Mm-hmm. You really have to pay attention. Because it's all about silent killing. Mm-hmm. That's what you're going to get awarded for. It's not Grand Theft Order. You know how many nuns can I kill in a bus? Mm-hmm. You know? um, and that was a different kind of um, game. You know, it it's you weren't trying to find the biggest gun or bazooka, mm-hmm. uh, take out a building. You were trying to kill someone without them even knowing that they were actually being you know assassinated. That combined with that. Undefinable element that's the sum of is greater than the sum of the parts. It's it's quite weird because mm-hmm. they've had other games, you know, they um, they've had Freedom Fighters and, and Kane and Lynch, mm-hmm. and they've dabbled in with some other games, but this one is just stays with the fans. Uh, 
loyalty. They are just they are just like fanatical about it, which mm-hmm. I total respect for. That's awesome, awesome, and I I have to agree. I guess on a lot of levels there. The I suppose the, the final question I have for you pertains to Iowa. I mean they're yeah. they're seemingly uh, and you've worked with them for a long time. They're now taking on the Bond franchise. A lot of people are speculating there. There's so much uh, still to be done with Hitman, and yet the trilogy's perhaps wrapped up in in, in a lot of ways. Uh, would it interest you to to keep working with them beyond the Hitman franchise, Bond or otherwise, play a certain role? Is there more that you want to do there? And answer that as you're able, I suppose. <laughs> and, and what was the last part of that question? Answer that as you're able. I don't know oh, what you're saying. My non-disclosure agreement is staring me in the face here. Um, no, uh, they were, I interacted first and foremost, uh, deserve the utmost, uh, you know, respect and huge congratulations for, for landing the Bond franchise. Um, you know, it's not a, a quantum leap from Agent 47 to James Bond, uh, but it is quintessential. You know, it is a, it's they are ready for it mm-hmm. and they for me you know i'm a member of bafta and i get to see games every year in the lead up to the bafta games awards although pretty much every year i, I have to always um exempt myself from it in the end because I'm, I'm too busy doing theater to kind of see all the games and do them justice so i have to pull out but the point being um I know what, uh, what is considered really worthy, uh, from a BAF, as a BAFTA jury, and that is a good story. Mm-hmm. So you can take all the special effects in the, on the planet, but if there's not a really good story going on there, uh, you may pick up one or two nominations for special effects and that, and that kind of thing, um, but it's not going to get their attention. They are, they're looking for something that's going to grab the attention of human beings by the hundreds of thousands mm-hmm. and will keep them coming back. Mm-hmm. And that is what I Interactive have done for 20 years with Hitman. Now, here's the thing. They're going into heavy work now um, on James Bond right now. Uh, and it's all so top secret. It's even very top secret from me. <laughs> um, and although on the one hand it's a kind of a no-brainer, I could easily play James Bond. Um, I totally accept that they would want to, for their own kind of credit worthiness, uh, go with another actor. Um, fair enough. They had the, the experience uh, of their writing team to come up with a really good story mm-hmm. and to write the dialogue for it. Mm-hmm. So in terms of the future, I would leap at any opportunity to work on the, on the James Bond franchise. I know on, at least on social media, there's a certain amount of attention to get me in as, a, um, as some kind of cameo role or as a villain, which oh. I'd be, you know, be grateful for. But, uh, As would I. I love that idea. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, but and with regard to future Hetman, obviously that's going to be put to, to one side uh, for the immediate foreseeable future. 
Um, but it would be a no-brainer uh, to, to to do another Hitman, of course. They're not going to throw away a franchise in 20 years. Um, so I can only hope that uh, they will. Uh, you know, I'll get the call uh, when they're ready, when they've James Bonded enough, you know, <laughs> to come back to a, a bit of Age of 47. But, oh, man. Uh, so the, the sh- yeah, there is no real short answer to that. But I would work with them with IO Interactive, the drop of a hat. They're an ex- quite an extraordinary company, um, and and very creative and, and exciting people to be around. So yeah, I'd love a go. My mind is racing at all the possibilities there, David. I'll tell you that. Goodness. Well, I can't thank you enough for your time on this interview. I appreciate you. Uh, please let anyone know where you'd like them to seek out more of your work or reach you on social media, whatever your preference being. Yeah, uh, by all means. I, I One thing wonderful has happened, which is kind of weird. People don't believe this. I do have this wonderful PR agent, Greg O'Connor-Reed, and that's the top dollar PR in Las Vegas, and he is a class act, and uh, I owe him a lot. <laughs> but now I have a, an official uh, voice agent, Peter Morris, in Soho Voices in London, one of the absolute top uh, voice agencies in London. So the future is looking bright. Uh, he knows um, I've got a lot of... Um, uh, credibility at the moment. So, uh, as soon as I think uh, this lockdown and the, the virus and, and the vaccines kick in, um, I think that's going to open literally a lot of studio doors, uh, either in the UK or in LA. And uh, and I hope to be there. But that's uh, lovely. Future's looking good. Let's just get a vaccine in place. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, David, thank you again for your time. My total pleasure.